I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Come on, show me the magic. Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies. What a scene of your Hollywood song. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is The True History of the Travelling Wilburys, a 2007 documentary that, if it had actually been released in theatres, would surely be remembered as cinema's greatest crossover event. (laughs) It is a reworking of footage from May 1988, showing how a supergroup consisting of George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison and Tom Petty set themselves a somewhat familiar task of writing and recording a whole album from scratch in a short time period in front of cameras. The difference here, though, is that the whole experience is much more relaxed despite only having 10 days to complete the project. The camera in question appears to be just a personal camcorder, and crucially, George actually seems totally comfortable and happy. So, Ed, how do we reconcile Let It Be George, someone who was clearly sort of justifiably insecure about being overshadowed uh, and outshone by his bandmates, with Travelling Wilbury's George, or Nelson Wilbury, as is, as is the pseudonym that he adopts, someone who uh, has grouped together you know, musical superstars and seems perfectly happy working with his new bandmates without any sense of ego. Uh, so you're comparing this to Get Back. You, I mean, you disguised that very well. I had no idea where you were going. <laughs> Did you know? Did you not? I thought it was quite clear. No, no, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I, 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 I very much could tell. Fair enough. Um, he... He's well. I mean, the obvious thing is he—he he seems quite at ease with himself, and he seems quite at ease in the company of other collaborators. Um, and I suppose, like, the obvious conclusion to draw from that is that he doesn't feel 
under pressure. He doesn't feel like he has to live up to the name of sort of being a Beatle, and he doesn't feel like he's in the shadow of anyone else there. Um, despite, you know, some of the people there, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, you know, sort of unquestionably, you know, rock rock luminaries, you know. Bob, Bob Dylan is someone that George was quite clearly a fan of during yeah. his time in the Beatles. So yeah. it, it sort of surprises me a little bit that we have, you know, members in this band that have been fans of each other. You know, you've got, you've got George who's, who's clearly been a fan of, uh, of Bob Dylan long before they became friends. You've got Jeff Lynne, who's clearly been a fan of George Harrison long before they came, became friends. Um, being able to work together uh, and get on, by all accounts, as equals. Yeah, it does it does seem that way. Um, it's kind of surprising in this where Dylan just seems such a sort of ready and content collaborator in this. And it's like, I don't really, I never really think of Dylan as the kind of guy who is collaborative or happy just to sort of get into a room with some other guys and have a bit of a laugh and muck about and make stuff up you know he doesn't seem I I don't know loads about Dylan at all but he doesn't seem like that kind of guy I I think there's there's probably a reason for that which is it's, it's probably embedded in this this idea that he deliberately perpetuates an image of himself as someone someone who's who's mysterious and enigmatic in some way but actually that is that's very much down to a musical image that he that he puts out there yeah and uh but yeah no he seems you know oddly at ease with the whole thing as does everyone you know there doesn't seem to be a lot of ego in the room and obviously the let it be sessions there's a lot of ego in the room um slightly slightly less than we were originally led to believe you know get back has shown us maybe there was a bit i mean you know things were um everyone was getting on a bit better than we thought but you know there there were still egos flying around for sure you know when you watch the the get back film my main impression of the dynamic of the Beatles at that point is that that, that really they're, they're still a band that are just trying to play together and and, and I, I don't necessarily think ego comes into it a, a huge deal but George has insecurities yeah uh, and like you know like I said in that intro justifiably so like he very quickly gets sidelined um, obviously and you know let's not get too much into it because we'll cover get back at some point in like a 12 part um, <laughs> podcast episode yeah. at Travaganza but but there's obviously issues there with him not feeling like he's been recognised as a songwriter in his own right. Yeah. So the intent behind Travelling Wilburys, and particularly in, in the recording of his first album, as documented in this film, which is to get a bunch of people in a room and write songs all together from scratch, yeah. just feels at odds with this idea that he gives off in in that film where where he you know he he feels like he needs to prove himself in some way yeah but i but i think also in in 69 just before those sessions you know i mean he says this in anthology he'd just been over in woodstock with dylan and the band and just been collaborating with them and seemed to have been sort of accepted as an equal you know and then what does he say you know then then to have to come back to the winter of discontent with the beatles <laughs> you know you can completely see that they're different dynamic. You know, he's just because this is the stupid thing. I mean, this is these are you know the Beatles are at that point just the most I don't know about admired musicians, but certainly you know the best sort of pop stars in the world. Everyone wants to hang out with them or collaborate with them, but actually, so George individually is just admired by other musicians, I'm sure. But then within in the room, when it's just the four of them. 
he's kind of playing, you know, third fiddle, I suppose. Do you, you think know? it's? Do you think it's as simple as when in the Beatles, he's trying hard to prove himself outside of the Beatles. There's no need for him to do that because he's a Beatle. Yeah, pretty much, literally, basically that. that. And, yeah. And yeah. So, so there's, there's, you know, the pressure is off in that sense. In that, um, the and, and also at this time, you know, post the Beatles breakup, he very quickly becomes the most commercially successful Beatle mm-hmm. in, in terms of his solo career. So yeah. he gets to prove himself that way. It's almost like he's, you know, you, you could argue that he might feel like he's proven a point by doing that. So yeah. actually, that. I don't want to say that during the Let It Be sessions he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder, but you could say that that sort of resolves that a little bit for himself. Yeah. And actually he's just more open to being collaborative with other bandmates again. Yeah, it seems that way. And I think also he seems to have kind of found a group of people who think about collaboration the same way he does, in that it's actually it's quite lighthearted. It's not to be taken too seriously. No, and you know, not so much just the thing about ego, but I mean, also um, the Wilburys are very much having a laugh. Yeah. You know, like there are daft, deliberately daft lyrics, and giving each other Wilbury nicknames and and all this. What were you telling me about the sleeve notes? Like they're sort of for so the, the, first the, album? the sleeve. The sleeve notes for the first album are um, they they tell the, the what's supposed to be the history of the traveling Wilbury. Like their nomads, um, it, it, it actually says the original Wilburys were stationary people, uh, realizing that civilization could not stand still forever. They began to go for short walks, and it goes on to um, explain the evolution of that short walk. You know, where they'd go out for lunch and for picnics, and then eventually they'd leave late Friday and come back on the Sunday. And it yeah. was just very much saying cheek. And, and those whole liner notes were written by Michael Palin. Yeah, obviously, thanks to uh, George Harrison's connections to Monty Python, who gave himself his own pseudonym, uh, which was Hugh Jampton. Yeah. Um, uh, coincidentally, the the liner notes for the second Traveling Wilburys album was written by Eric Idle. Yeah. Who gave himself the uh, pseudonym Tiny Jampton? I think it is. <laughs> I think it's is it Little Jampton? No, I think it's Tiny Jampton. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, there, but you're right. There, there's a there's a definitely a daft sense to traveling Wilburys. You yeah. know, I mean, we can call out the fact that, I mean, just the most notable uh, ones of which are you know that they released two albums, Traveling Wilburys Volume One, followed by Traveling Wilburys Volume Three. Yeah, the, the songs themselves have a certain oh, almost like verging on parody um, element to yeah. them. You know, uh, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't show up in this film, but there's the song "Dirty World," that that is ostensibly about, I guess, sexy cars. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it starts off with a line, something about your sexy body, and that started off by Bob Dylan saying that he they, they should try to write a song like Prince. Yeah, you know, but for for that to then turn into this familiar. Wilbury's sound it's a bit like sort of folksy skiffle um, yeah. uh, but still retain this element of sort of humour to it but still you know all of the songs still stand up in their own right as as actual songs um, it's just a really interesting balance to strike it feels like they're it's like they, they've created as much as they are an important and exciting super group that are recognised throughout music as being the, you know, the the greatest or biggest supergroup of all time, 
they almost approached it like they were creating like a, a novelty comedy band. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you know, giving themselves, like you say, like, you know, Wilbury nicknames and, and stuff. And Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's almost kind of like a like a gang you'd form at school or something like that, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Just, you know, and um, and actually, like, you know, you kind of talk about that sound of theirs and they are, they are kind of, it's kind of funny that uh, these sort of disparate influences, well, I mean, you know, they're all like men who play guitars and like rock and roll, but still they're all bringing something different to the table and yet they have a kind of signature sound. It's that sort of 12-string acoustic mm. sound, which is quite sort of driving in a way. Uh, not in the sense of, um, you know, uh, tw- 20 best driving songs that you'd buy at, <laughs> that you, that you'd buy at Gordano Services or something like that. But, um, but uh, very well, specific. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best place to get your CDs, Gordano Services. <laughs> driving classics. It's where I always go, yeah. But, no, but there is a kind of driving rhythm to it, and that guitar mm. sound is very distinctive, you know, and it's the one that sort of when uh, McCartney wanted Jeff Lynne to come and work with him post Free as a Bird and Earn Real Love. And so Jeff came and worked on uh, Flaming Pie with him. And you can hear that Jeff Lynne influence it's in those songs. For example, So Young Boy in particular um, is very, very Wilbury's kind of sound, you know. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think that, um, I think it's interesting that uh, what you have in, and what this documentary shows us is to, um, you know, they set themselves the task of writing and recording 10 songs in 10 days. And yeah. they approached it as a song a day. But what you have in in that house, in Dave Stewart's house, is five guys with guitars. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so there's a reason why the um, Travelling Wilburys has an overly guitar-y sound. Yeah. Because the first footage you see of them trying to write some of those songs all together is just all of them in a circle with guitars. It's just hilarious. <laughs> like you've got Jim Keltner who they brought in uh, as a, you know, as a session musician to play drums, but, but essentially everything else is them and their predominant instrument for each of them is the acoustic guitar. <laughs> yeah. um, what I like about the, uh, I don't know if it comes through necessarily in documentary, but what I like about the album that, you know, that gets explored here is that Jeff Lynn as a producer, I think, um, finds ways to bring through the individual personalities and identities of each of the members of the group. Yeah. So with with, with the opening song "Handle with Care," the, the song towards the end becomes almost like a sort of a trade off between Bob Dylan's harmonica and George Harrison's slide guitar, which are two you know um, very distinctive instruments yeah. or sounds that are associated with those artists. Yeah. You have in I think it's, I think it's rattled uh, where you have like Roy Orbison doing the, um, I'm sure I can do it better than that. Uh, that he does in Pretty Woman, um, and yeah, and and also throughout all of it, I, I find as a as a big ELO fan, I find that there are very very clear Jeff Lynn influences on a lot of the songs. You've got lots of sort of runs on synth and and sort of like super uber backed up vocal harmonies and, yeah. and stuff and uh yeah so, so you've got this sort of this this simplistic style that the band adopts that uh you know is this sort of folksy kind of sound that feels in tune this idea of the traveling wilburys but actually you also bring in these you know these these, these identifiable elements of each of the group members as well and i think that's just quite it's quite a neat balance to strike. 
It definitely is, yeah. And I, and I think, um, you, you know loads more about Jeff Lynn and ELO uh, than I do, but, you know, I, I always, it seems to be his skill as a producer. I mean, so he's, he's sort of talked about as being that documentary about him where um, Paul and Ringo are talking about recording um, uh, Real Love and Free as a Bird with him. They do talk uh, about him as a sort of good diplomat almost you know someone who's very aware that he's in a room with some very big egos mm. and is good at uh striking the balance between making sure he's getting the best out of everyone um and not upsetting the apple cut so to speak you know? yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right and i think that he's it's, it's amazing that his work as a producer i, I think maybe goes a little bit underrated yeah, I think I think he's he's worked on some you know really important albums for the period, not least of which obviously is before this album, Traveling Wilbur's album. He had produced and co-written some of the songs for George Harrison's Cloud Nine, yeah. which is how the pair of them met and then went on to form this this group. I think um, when you say that I know loads about Jeff Lynne, uh, I can't help but be reminded that. Uh, I I first started listening to Yellow when I was very little. Um, listened to my parents' record collection, and the, the the name Jeff Lynne stands out to me because the first time I really took notice of that name is me and my brother, who's four years older than me, listening to these records and really loving Yellow. Yeah. Um, but always on the back of an Yellow album, you would have um, lyrics by Jeff Lynne, music by Jeff Lynne, string arrangements by Jeff Lynne, yeah. produced by Jeff Lynne. Yeah. Catering by Jeff Lynne, like you know, it was just, and it would just became a bit of an in joke between me and my brother about like how much Jeff Lynne is basically, you know, is ELO without right. us really understanding at that age that he was, you know, and that's, right. that it just seemed like a funny thing that his name he felt the need to credit himself so many times, right, okay. but but he is just this incredibly multi talented, multi faceted guy yeah. when it comes to music, and he's it's clear with with this in this documentary and it's clear in in, you know, in the in the documentary that that, um, that you were talking about and when when we've seen him talk about anthology that he never really seemed to lose that enthusiasm for for the job at hand you know it always yeah. seemed to be something that he was not only adept at doing but just really took a lot of joy from yeah yeah and you know there's it, it, there is there's a real humility to him as well in that you can tell that he is really bowled over by the fact that he's even been let in the room with people like this. You know, there's a a, a lovely a, a lovely thing in. I don't know what this other documentary is called because I've only ever seen the YouTube clip of it. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, but I'm sure it's called the Jeff Lynne story. The Jeff Lynne story, story. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it is, sure. yeah, Let's yeah. call it that. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lovely bit. Yellow, in... is it me you're looking for? <laughs> Oh, that's ever so strong. <laughs> <laughs> the, the annoying thing, like I was trying to think of one as well. He just immediately came straight off the bat. This is not my first ELO pun off, my friend. <laughs> Mr. Blue, give me a minute. Uh, no, okay. So, the, so, so the other, the other documentary. Um, there's a lovely bit in it where he's talking about when he's in there, sort of producing free as a bird and Neil Aspinall comes in and first off he says he's just thinks it's amazing that Neil Aspinall's even speaking to him and he says like um, uh, you know uh, like John and George would uh, John and George Paul and George would like you to come in and like check out the harmonies that they're doing he's like what like me check out the harmonies oh I can't believe it I'm sitting in this room it's amazing you know and like (laughs) and it's lovely that that 
but it's all you know um it's all but that that way he speaks because that accent is always quite disarming right yeah you know it's a it it, it makes it, 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 it incorrectly of course but like it gives it gives you the idea that somebody is uh, that simple is not the word but like uh well-meaning and sort of easily charmed mm. and um and you get that impression with jeff you know like he he is constantly he just he can't believe he's been let in here. He just feels honoured to be there. You know? Just the fact that he's excited that Neil Aspinall is going. <laughs> right, alone, right, right. Not alone that he's been asked to check on the harmonies between Paul and George, but yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That just that he recognises the importance of Neil Aspinall's role. Uh, it's just incredible, isn't it? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too. connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10 percent on your first month that's better help h-e-l-p This documentary without going off talk, topic and talking about the, the band as a whole. And I, you know, maybe maybe it's okay that we do that. But one of the things I feel about this documentary is that it's a shame that this is all we have. Yeah. So it's it's brilliant that we have it at all. Obviously, like we, you know, it, it, first of all, it's it's a little bit difficult to decipher exactly what a documentary is because it's made predominantly from home footage from 1988 uh, at the recording but actually it was put together for a 2007 re-release of the album and and that's made clear when the credits roll at the end i think but it's it's a shame that for what is such a a big event in rock music in terms of getting these icons together as a band we only have these sort of 27 minutes that really documents that and, and probably yeah. not much more than that because it was 10 days worth of material that they filmed shortly after the album was released. Obviously, Roy Orbison died. They, you know, they obviously went on to release a second album, but it was it felt like it, it could have been the start of something bigger and, and something that lasted longer had it not been for Roy Orbison's death. So we have this milestone in sort of rock history of the traveling Wilburys forming and releasing an album that they did from the i think jeff lynn says from the writing of the first chord right through to the mix of the last chord lasted six weeks yeah and we don't really have anything else to to sort of register that uh with them you know it's, it's great that we have this at all but it just feels like a shame that it's only 27 minutes long because it's such a mon- monumentous achievement i think yeah uh, and i think but i think it also feels quite fitting in a sense that, uh, like I say, they uh, none of them really seemed to be treating it that seriously, mm. or to be thinking, "Well, this is this is the next big thing in my career." You know, I think they, they all seem to just be happy to be along for the ride. 
and actually a sort of 25 minute documentary they never played any gigs did they right it no was a, no not right, at all yeah, no. I presume not I think but, I think um, they um I think you know in terms of where they were in their careers at the time this happened I think George Harrison was was incredibly successful was enjoying the success of Cloud Nine I think Bob Dylan uh was much less so I think he was actually coming off the back of some some poorly received uh oh, the, Chris, the Christian albums was it that I'm not sure oh, I'm not sure honestly I don't, I don't yeah. know the, the Dylan timeline but, well uh, enough, I but... don't know either I'm afraid I'm not I'm, I'm not as au fait with the, the Dylan um uh discography um and then Roy Orbison I think it's probably a, it feels like it's you're you're bringing on like uh an older musical icon into the mix yeah um who probably I think if I remember rightly, like he he might have been at that time been going down the route of almost kind of like lounge singer status where you're sort of churning out the hits and yeah. you're recognised for your voice rather than, you know, anybody sort of eagerly anticipating your new release. You yeah. Know? yeah. So actually what Travelling Wilburys did for, for everyone's career was, was sort of bring them back into the fold. It was a, you know, it was a well-received album yeah. and it, it kind of kick-started a lot of their... Kickstarter is the wrong word, but it, they were able to enjoy the success of Travelling Wilburys in their own individual solo careers off yeah. the back of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, and, and you know, one of the reasons why there's a ten day time limit is because Dylan's about to go on tour, so yeah. they never really got a chance to capitalize on the success of the album. It was seen as a yeah. singular project that I think maybe I don't know, maybe it surprised them um, that's the success of it in order for them to want to regroup for a later album even yeah. after Boyle was in his death but I don't think there was any of the plans to, to turn it into a, a full time gig no it doesn't seem that way does it it's actually it's interesting to think of the the idea that near the end of Let It Be slash Get Back that George seems to be suggesting is that well I can just go off and do this solo album because I've got all this material mm. and maybe you know then we can get together and you know, and there is a school of thought that if the Beatles had carried on maybe they just would have been just going off and doing their own thing and then getting together and recording every three or four years when they fancied it probably not playing any gigs but just recording albums mm. when the the mood took them you know and actually that seems to be what the Wilburys um did. yeah could have done yeah exactly yeah i mean i, I think in some ways it's probably a traveling robbery is probably they, they probably have an air about them which has a similar kind of like reputation for naffness like wings used to <laughs> yeah. you know there, there's probably this idea that even at the time that it happened they were you know older rock stars getting together and producing sort of traditional music so there's probably a bit of a hint of yeah, like naffness um, to they're, to the whole project. They're the band. The band could have been. Yeah, the band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, yeah, they're the band that the Wings could have been really because we're looking at like sort of musical collaborations. I think that the um, I think it's probably it probably stands them better in the long run that it was as short lived as it was. Yeah. Because if following the success of their first album, they had decided to do more with it, then I think that might run its course with audience interest yeah. um, sooner than than maybe they would expect at the time. I think it's, you know, one of those things that becomes just like a, a fleeting moment. You know, it's a spark that shines brightly <laughs> <laughs> rather than for a long time. I think it's interesting, though, that, you know, when you're comparing it to the Beatles and, and particularly comparing how the band members get on in this documentary compared with how the how the Beatles get on with in Get Back or Let It Be. 
I think it's interesting that what you're saying about maybe the Beatles could have come back and recorded uh, an album every now and again. I think the reason why this works is because it is that complete different dynamic. Yeah. And obviously the answer to the question I asked at the start is that John and Paul wouldn't, wouldn't I think, treat George the way that he wanted to be treated in the band as an equal. Yeah. You know? But also equally, I don't think Paul could have pulled together Travelling Wilburys. You know, he had the clout yeah. to, but I don't think, I don't think he would have got in I uh, got in Jeff and Bob and Roy Orbison and Tom Petty and yeah. been a fifth of a band as opposed to the leader of a band. Yeah, I think it, even if he tried to do that kind of thing, I think everyone would have recognised that they weren't going to be an equal, you know, like one fifth of an equal. Yes. P- pie? Anyway, what, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, but um, yeah, I think they all would have recognised that. And and yes, I don't think he would have. I I don't think McCartney would really know how to do that. Like you know, the collaborations he has done. Uh, you know, you think about the Elvis Costello collaboration, mm. um, which worked great up to a point. You know, and the point was when Elvis Costello started challenging him a bit too much. You know, and then it sort of fell apart a bit. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I I think. Yeah, I mean, it 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 makes sense. You know, I mean, they're they're all guys with egos. The Beatles, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm sure uh, Travelling Wilburys as well. But they, but they, Travelling Wilburys all seem to leave those egos at the door and are quite happy just to be thought of as equals. And it's really nice to see George in that yeah. environment. He's so relaxed, you know, and so easygoing. And he's just he's just having a laugh with me. You know, there's a nice bit in the film where Jim Keltner is... Um, uh, he's just drumming on the fridge yeah. on like, he's got the fridge open he's sort of drumming on the shelves you know yeah for the song rattled yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know and this and it, was, it was dave stewart's fridge you know yeah he, you know he's um I, I i had this image in my head of like him as like an airbnb host you know <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and writing them a bad review because like his his fridge shelves were all dented you know <laughs> Uh, oh, but but there's there's a nice informality about that, and they seem to have uh, uh, set up microphones just in the kit. They were sort of recording in the kitchen anywhere, anyway, where the acoustics can't have been great because it would have been too echoey. Um, but they just seem quite informal and happy to do that. And then you know this, it sounds great when he drums on the fridge shelf. So let's uh, let's stick that in. You know? I think that's one of the things that's sort of most striking about the documentary is that you know this is this is the only, as I said earlier, the only footage that we have of the most important you know musical supergroup coming together uh in in let's say in history uh and make it as grandiose as that um and and actually you know you, you kind of wonder well how do the dynamics of that supergroup work and as the documentary shows us they're just five normal guys right they're just you know they, they sit around they play the guitar yeah. they're writing a song change up a lyric or two they have a laugh when they're singing it you know yeah. they, they mess about yeah. they decide to record some bits um you know here again on the fly and it just there's no there's no like uh moment where you're struck by oh this is a genius like yeah. thing that's happening right now for the song yes. even though arguably the you know the, the five people in the room can be recognised as such. Yeah. There's, you know, there's no moment in documentary where you're like, oh yeah, this is... There's, there's a moment where um, uh, you see Bob Dylan playing the... or writing, I guess, in the moment, the opening chords for, I think it's Last Night. Yeah. 
and he's playing it. It's, a, it's quite a distinctive rhythm that he's playing it, and he's showing it. I think to to Tom Petty, who then picks it up, and you know, they're, and they're sort of playing it together. And I'm like, that's like the uh, that's like this documentary is equivalent of of Paul writing Get Back Out of Thin Air, right? <laughs> right this is, yeah. You know, but you don't you don't get that sense of uh, to, 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 it's a privilege to be in the company of of actually the sight of this moment happening and forming. So yeah. it's just it just feels very natural, and they and they turn what they have into. A good fun album yeah it seems that way yeah. yeah but i think i think also maybe there's this thinking about rock rock music that it has to be uh uh that it, that it has to be taken terribly seriously you mm. know and um you know i mean you think about that conversation people are always having about oh i th- you know i think maxwell silverhammer and obla di obla da are terrible songs mm. and and of course they're not terrible songs they're brilliant songs but i mean the reason that people men always men say that <laughs> is because they they think they're sort of children's songs or throwaway songs and therefore they aren't serious enough and this rock music has to be taken very very seriously like rock music in, in particular like hard rock music with an edge is what has real integrity right exactly yeah. you know and, and you know because and it maybe stems from this idea that because the beatles original fans were sort of teenage girls but then there comes a time when they all got into the studio and they started making proper serious music. Yeah. And now um, you can't you, you can't scream and wet yourself over Revolver because it's just it's too serious and it's too important, you know. Yeah. And like you know, we're, we're here now and we know how to appreciate this. And I think you know, I mean that um, that view of music or I mean any art or culture is incredibly dull, um, but. Um, it, it it is nice when you see um, these sort of rock luminaries, you know, uh, just getting together and not taking it too seriously at all. You know, yeah. No, nobody is in there saying, "No, no, hang on, lads, let's stop having a laugh." This is a very serious thing we're doing here. You know, and, and, and you know, it, it probably if you watch the documentary, I think uh, one of the real highlights is when they absolutely like, break down uh, crying of laughter because of <laughs> Roy Orbison. Ending up repeating a line, "Trembling Wilbury," yeah. Um, yeah. for for Dirty World, and it is funny, but it's also it's funny just him explaining it and then seeing them do it, and yeah, and and it's also just because it's such a nice, it's a nice environment, a nice atmosphere that they're recording that album in, where mm. you've got five guys around a microphone, like you know, they 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 you know, that's the extent to which they treated each other as equals. There's no, we're not going to record everyone individually and then mix it in the track. Like we're all going to stand around the microphone and do it together and take it in turns to do a line and, and yeah, yeah. Um, it just, it does, does feel like they've approached the whole project as a laugh really. And, and actually if maybe if nothing came out of it that they wanted to pursue, it would have just got shelved and they wouldn't have done anything, but they would have had a good 10 days yeah. on the back of it. And you know, what's to say that's, you know, not a, a great thing in itself. Yeah, it, it it makes you wonder, I suppose, uh, how many other projects like this there have been where musicians just sort of get together at someone's ranch for a few days and just kind of bash out a few songs and then see how it goes and it doesn't quite work out and then you just never hear about it. Never hear about it until like the 50-year re-release, uh, remaster when they're <laughs> running out of things to fill the box sets. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good point, actually, because there's a, there is a, there's a moment in documentary which I... I, I found really interesting which is Jeff Lynn is in his role as sort of I guess head producer uh, of the project 
seems to be, particularly in the finished product, I think seems to be making uh, what are ultimately sort of creative recording choices. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily songwriting choices, but like, you know, as you would as a as a producer on a record, making choices around how the, the, old, the finished presentation of a song. And there's a moment in the documentary where God, they, they've written and recorded um, Not Alone Anymore, which is the, the big Roy Orbison number on the album. And then he, he explains how he decides to go back into the studio overnight and just completely re-record the guitar part using a different chord structure or yeah. a different chord progression you know, yeah. for the song. Somehow doing... I mean, we, we don't know what the original was, right? There's no there's no released version of what that original version of that song was, right. uh, at least until the, you know, what are we up to, nearly 40-year anniversary. Yeah. But but somehow he's managed to do that. He's, he's, he's had it in his head that actually, uh, I've hit upon an idea, uh, I think the song would work better this way. I'm going to go back into the studio by myself, re-record the, the music for this song in such a way that it still works with the vocals that they've already uh, recorded yeah. so the the you know everything's sitting key at the right time it needs yeah, to be yeah. for the whatever change in chord structure he's he's made there and then play back to the, the gang the next day and and then you know they don't go so far as to say this they say they don't go so far as to say this but presumably they're all like yeah you're right it sounds better that sounds great well done yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. he's just changed the whole song that they all wrote together and played and recorded yeah and the next day he's like actually i've actually changed the key part of it and they're like yeah sounds good well done. Yeah, yeah. Nice work. Well, there's a lot of confidence in doing that, and there's a lot of definitely feeling at ease in that company. Yes. You know, I mean, you can go, we were talking about the sort of reverence he felt when recording with the Beatles for the anthology project, and six or seven years earlier, he's he's in a studio with George and with sort of Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison, and just decides, like, oh, I'm just going to change this thing completely. Yeah. What do you reckon? You know, and like, there must be, like I say, that you know, there there is that kind of childlike enthusiasm around him where he just it feels very grateful to be in the room, but he also knows how good he is, right? I think that's it. Yeah. It's, it's that. It's, it's, you're right. He's he's very. He manages to stay enthusiastic for the project. He manages to, I, I think, still be quite in awe of the company that he's keeping during that project, and yet at the same time, still manage to have a controlling hand in the creative choices that are made yeah. like more so than I think probably any other person in that group, including George. Just yeah. Be, just because like he, he's the one that I think he was given the direction of, of how, you know, like I said, the, the, what the final presentation of each song is going to be. Yeah. Um, and but, I think that's, that's incredible. That's an incredible sort of confidence and, and skill to have. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I think maybe um, that's more of just sort of a producer's role, um, mm. I would say. But I think, if there is, I don't think there is a, a leader to the Travelling Wilburys, but if if there is, it feels to me like it's George. It feels to me like he's the guy in the room who is the most revered. Again, as we alluded to earlier earlier on, he's a Beatle. Yes, you know? yeah. And, that's, I think, and that's enough, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, that, obviously, it's enough for a reason because he's, you know, he's done, because of his contribution to the Beatles. Yeah. But but the fact that he's a Beatle is, is what carries the most weight in that room. Yeah, I think so. And, I, I, you know, I'm not saying... It, he he seems a, a very eager collaborator. He doesn't seem to be stamping his own authority on it or anything like that. But he does seem to have been the guy who sort of got the thing together. He was mm. sort of making the phone calls. You know, if you th- think about he, and he's always had been aware of this clout of just 
whichever benefit concert it was, the people of Bangladesh, yeah. where, you know, he's just on the phone saying, well, we need Eric Clapton. Mm. Uh, and Clapton, I mean, is strong out on heroin, but still, yeah, still, say, yeah. still turns up <laughs> a few days later. You know. It's a problematic example to give at this juncture. But <laughs> yeah, yes. it's, not, it's not the best example, you're right. <laughs> but, you know, he, he he's completely aware with things like that, that he can just get on the phone. But And that's also just because I think that a lot of that is down to his own ability to build those relationships with other musicians yeah you know like in a way that just i you know i don't want to i don't want to rag on macca but in a way that paul mccartney didn't really you know we 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 talked before when we covered off wingspan about how um paul mccartney's approach to creating a new band was to just hire people that essentially served as his employees whilst in a band yeah um Whereas George has has gone out and collaborated with other people, and he's built good relationships with other singers and songwriters and artists. So when the when the call comes in to see whether they can help support him in his course for concert for Bangladesh, there's a friendship there that's already established, and yeah. you know, and those musicians are more than willing to help out a friend. Yeah, uh, in the same way as you know approaching traveling Wilburys, it's a you know these are these are people that have established a relationship beforehand, and then you know he hasn't called out. There's no one in this group that has been called out of the blue by someone they don't know. Yeah. To with an idea of joining a band just because they're famous, you know, they 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 it's all predicated on existing friendships and relationships. Yeah, and 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 nobody's threatened by the idea of working with George. Mm. You know, it's not like McCartney rings you up and says, "Do you want to collaborate on this thing?" then obviously that's amazing and you say yes but you don't but you, you're probably thinking well i know how this is going to go you know i'm, I, <laughs> yes, I'm, exactly, I'm yeah. gonna uh, i'm gonna yeah. play the, the, the stuff i'm told to play yes exactly and I'll, i'm know. gonna turn up with 13 of my best ideas and i'm gonna end up playing his one idea yeah of course <laughs> yeah. of course you know and um there's that story isn't there um i think it was in wings paul mccartney basically set a, a almost like a challenge for the rest of the band mates about Everyone coming back into like the studio with a song, and then they will choose uh, the best song to be the B side of their single, <laughs> and ultimately he chose his own one. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. You know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just what a, what a pointless challenge to say anyone. <laughs> like, what, what you've achieved there, Morgani, is a waste of everyone's time and pissing everyone else in the process. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit, a bit like Ed Sheeran declaring the song war backstage. Yes, you know? Exactly like yeah. It's very much like, what, what a different world that these guys live in where, where they just have musical-based challenges at every turn. Yeah, yeah. The documentary format is, here is each song presented in their, uh, in turn. Yeah. And the footage we have that went into each of those feels a little bit like each song is given equal amount of time. Makes me wonder whether or not that's the, that was the right approach. Like, you know, Handle With Care is, is is the big number that everyone remembers. That's kind of brushed past a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there isn't... Obviously, that was, that was recorded before this session. So um, there wasn't any footage of them at Dave Stewart's house. Um, there was no available fridge, as far as I'm aware, on to, to drum on for the, the the track. They recorded that completely separately from yeah. this whole album session. Yeah. But it feels like that's a, it's a, a strange thing as, as the big number from the album for them to just breeze past and and for them to give equal weighting to 
each of the album tracks as opposed to sort of thinking about what are the most what are the bigger songs to explore in, a, in this doc yeah well i wonder whether that was how much footage was shot of each one and stuff like that and actually when they got down to looking at what they had um i presume the brief was to make a very short documentary so it just be released on a an enhanced CD or whatever it was. Classic enhanced CD. Yeah, yeah. it's good. It's, yeah, it's absolute. Put it into your CD ROM and enjoy that twenty-seven minute documentary. Yeah, after it loads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of uh, buying uh, Wu Tang Forever in nineteen ninety-seven, <laughs> and it came with an enhanced CD where you could look around the Wu Mansion. So, it's, uh, I loaded this up on Windows ninety-five. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, and it was it was just a thing where you'd click and you'd go into like the Rizzo's bedroom and then he'd say something to you. <laughs> and he said something to you. Yeah, they were, they were like they'd recorded like a couple of clips for oh, it. Wow. Uh, but this was amazing technology back then, as far yeah. as I was concerned. You know. Oh, sorry, I forgot how I got onto the Wu Mansion. No, no, uh, 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 it depends on how much footage was shot for each of these. So, so I, I get that there's a, yeah. you know, that there, there's probably there's very limited footage of each recording. I realise that they're sort of putting together a documentary that looks at the album as a whole. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, it goes back to my original point. It just, I, I maybe it's just me talking as a fan, but I just kind of wish that there was a 50 minute version of this documentary that gave yeah. sort of a bit more due reverence to some of the milestones that, that came along before and went set, set a little bit more context, um, just explained a little bit more uh, and sold a little bit more the idea of why this was actually such a big deal at, at the time it happened. Because yeah. you know, as far as I'm aware, as far as I know, the, the album itself ended up being released with quite little fanfare. Like, yeah. you know, it, was a, it wasn't a project that people were aware of yeah. before before it came out. It was, it was obviously released... As the Travelling Wilburys, they've all got pseudonyms. It was released on the Travelling Wilburys' own record label, I believe. They'd set one up for the release because obviously, presumably, they're all tied into different um, recording contracts and stuff. Yeah, it, it just feels like something that came out and was a big deal, but actually there wasn't much in the way to remember it by. Yeah, but I, I suppose the idea of it being a big deal is not something that any of them wanted to push it mm. seems they wanted to treat it quite casually and i suppose if it had been if there'd been kind of any kind of marketing push behind it then it might have just changed it all for them and turned it into something that they didn't uh, that they didn't want it to be and i suppose that as i think we said before the the fact that it's only 25 minutes long and it's sort of fairly thin and fairly casual it, it is of a piece with the, the the whole career of the Travelling Wilburys, everything they released and the way they approached everything, you know. Um, I know what you mean. You always end up thinking, well, I'd like a bit more of that. Yeah. If it's get... only 25 minutes long, you want a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It just feels like it's, it's, the only, it's the only footage. I feel quite sad now I'm talking about this now that this is all we <laughs> yeah. have. Would, um, you, would you watch an eight-hour <laughs> digitally remastered Peter Jackson version? I'm waiting for it as we yeah. speak. I'm assuming that... <laughs> Uh, what you were just saying there about um, you know and treating it without wanting to get too hung up on the sort of you know the the more serious business side of things reminds me of another excerpt from Hugh Jampton's uh, liner notes where he mm-hmm. says uh, as the Wilburys began to go further in their search for musical inspiration they found themselves the object of interest among many less developed species nightclub owners tour operators and recording executives to the Wilburys who had only had just learnt to cope with wives, roadies and drummers, it was a blow from which many of them never recovered. Uh, it's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I just really enjoy that whole that whole the whole thing. Yeah. 
Out of interest, do you know why they're called Travelling Wilburys? I do not. I'm going to interest you with a great Wilbury factoid. Uh, okay, hit me. Uh, during the recording of Cloud Nine, uh, where Jeff Lynne obviously was a, a producer on that album with George Harrison, it became a bit of an in-joke that whenever there was something in the track that they didn't like, they would turn to each other and say, we'll bury that in the mix. And Woolberry <laughs> became the um, the origin of the Travelling Wilbur's name. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know Isn't that. fun? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah. That's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, if I have one Travelling Wilbur's factoid, it's yeah, a good one. That is a good one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, and I think with that factoid, I've exhausted all of my Travelling Wilbur's chat around this documentary. Do you think it was a good experience watching the documentary? Well, it's not It's not about enjoying it. Right? <laughs> Films aren't it's there to be enjoyed. judging it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, You're yeah. supposed to judge it and analyse it to death. That's why we're here. <laughs> and remove all fun from the experience. I just I, I, The reason I ask is because it just seems like... I don't know, it just seems such a lightweight thing. And, and yeah. I, I quite... I, I, you know, I've watched it many times, but I feel like I could, I could watch it again right now, having watched it several times for this podcast. Yeah. And I feel like I would... You know, I wouldn't be bored of it. It just seems like what, just a nice, you know, it's a nice atmosphere. It has a nice tone to it all. It just seems, you know, yeah. just watching these five megastars just have a good time together. And I just, you know, it's, it's just an enjoyable piece of content. Yeah. I, I think, so, yes, I did enjoy it. And I, I will say, I think the primary reason for that is that there's very few things... Uh, I enjoy more than just seeing George in a good mood. You know, <laughs> that was <And>, rarely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But just, but just having a laugh and yeah. enjoying himself. Because every time I see sort of Beatles footage where they are having a laugh, there is there is always a bit of me that just thinks like, yeah, but what's 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 underneath the surface with mm. George? You know, there'll be some resentment there. The, the person he's talking to, there'll be a way in which he thinks he he wronged him in 1964, which he hasn't let go of yet. You know, like yeah. there's, there's always. I mean, it, it sounds like you're painting a very unfair picture of George, but but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm I'm hard pressed to argue with it. <laughs> well, I mean, like you know, he 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 held a grudge. I'm not saying he was a grumpy. I mean, he was grumpy at times. But I'm not saying he. But I I really I really like seeing him in an environment where he's completely comfortable. There is no beef or grudge against anyone else in the room, as far as you can tell. He feels uh, completely at home, and he's enjoying himself, and he's in his element, you know. And there aren't... I I often felt through some of his... Not I was alive throughout his solo career, but, like, uh, watching elements of his solo career, um, I, you can often feel like he was sort of going through the motions or trying to prove a point mm. or something like that. And I think sort of Cloud9 onwards through Travelling Wilburys and then the songs that were originally released posthumously on Brainwashed, which is an album I absolutely loved. Um, I just think he is completely comfortable with what he's doing, isn't trying to prove a point to anybody and sort of, you know, Travelling Cloud9, Travelling Wilburys onwards just seemed to have arrived at a point where he was just very, very comfortable creatively. And I think that's a lovely thing to watch. I think, yeah, I think it's a really good point. I, 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 think I, I agree with you. I find that that George clearly feels, uh, rightly or wrongly, that he's sort of, you know, been given the short stick a little bit. You know, uh, he's been hard done by throughout the Beatles' career, and and there's there's this sort of grumpiness factor that comes with that, which you know, it's something that gets just um, magnified a thousandfold when you're in the biggest band and one of the most famous people on the planet, yeah. right? 
Um, people are constantly telling this. All you hear day in day out is how amazing Paul McCartney and John Lennon are, and you know I, I imagine that's that that feeds that sort of uh, resentment. Yeah. And I often find it quite hard to sort of reconcile that that view of George with what I know to be the true of uh, of his fondness for that sort of Monty Python style of daft humour. Yeah, and I think this documentary probably gives me the the closest thing we have of of both of those things coming together in terms of like his musicality and his sense of humor um coming together into one project yeah so i think it's probably quite important that it shows that side of george and that sort of rounded nature of of him as an individual not just someone who was a beetle or an ex-beetle yeah anything else you want to add on the the true history of the traveling wilburys no, I'm happy that that is the true history of the Travelling Wilburys. Finally, we have the true history. <laughs> okay, then let's wrap it up there. I hope you've enjoyed us talking about Travelling Wilburys. If you have enjoyed that, then please leave us a review and uh, tell us that we're great or at least help us with our podcast stats. You can also find us on various social media platforms uh, using the handle at Beatles Films Pod. And either way, we will see you next week for another episode. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.